Let me take a moment to pray, and then we'll dive in. God, thanks for uh, the opportunity we have to, to come into your word and um, pause in the middle of a week that um, there are many highs and lows for us, um, a lot of churn going on continually, going on in the news, and um, we might feel unsettled, we might feel excited, we might feel distracted right now, God, and so we just, we, we plea for you, Spirit, to uh, come in on our behalf, just like Romans says, and do the work that you need to do in our hearts, even when we, we can't uh, seem to, to do that ourselves. Um, minister to us, God. Open our hearts to new sources of revelation through your word. Um, where we need encouragement, God, would you do that? Where we need correction and, and guidance, would you do that? We are open, God, to what you have to do this morning. I pray this in Christ. Amen. A uh, quick poll. How many of you guys like DIY projects? Okay, there's a few of you here. I admire you people because you find inspiration by what you see online. Um, you come across something on like Instagram or Pinterest. And, and what's really cool about you is you attempt to pull it off by yourself without an instruction manual. I'm an instruction manual guy. <clears throat> you have no expert advice. You just, you, you have this picture and you have a great idea and then you do it. And, and, but what I've come to learn about you <laughs> is that things always, don't always pan out the way you envision. And here's what I mean by that. So some of you are familiar with Pinterest. If you have a 14-year-old daughter, you particularly know what I'm talking about. And there's, there's this hashtag on Pinterest called Pinterest Fails. Have you guys, some of you know this? We have a family Pinterest account right now, apparently, because I get the notices all the time, spam. And so I, I just go on Pinterest once in a while. That's a little confession. But... Um, so people see these, these ideas on Pinterest, and they think to themselves, I could do that. And then they do it, or as you expect, they don't. So here's a few examples just to warm you guys up. Greg, go ahead and put up the first slide here. Most of these are about food. No, not that. <laughs> the picture ones, just the first picture. Do you see them there? Nope, not that one either. <laughs> we didn't rehearse, so <laughs> it's Okay. There's no pictures. Oh, shoot. Zero pictures? None. I loaded them up this morning, and they're not there. Okay, well, anyway, so, hey, that was really funny. Oh, my goodness. They're, they're just not there, are they? Mm-mm-mm. No, not that one either. So, anyway, um, other than just a cheap laugh, um, Great. It had a lot to do. Have you guys seen these Pinterest fails? Some of you? Okay, you guys are so with me. Go on BuzzFeed sometime. <laughs> You'll find them because they're all there. So the, the reason for that, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. Um, it's actually quite simple. So Jesus in Luke 4, he's come out of the desert. Uh, Silas talked about this last Sunday where he's tempted by the devil. And, um, and just prior to that, he's baptized in the Jordan River. And, and both of those experiences signal that his preparation for ministry is now complete. He's ready. He's ready. Um, and he's more than ready. As Luke tells us in verse 14, as we just read, he returns to Galilee powerful in the spirit. So something about Jesus is now different. There's a sort of favor resting on him that wasn't maybe there before. And so the countryside is buzzing all around his hometown of Nazareth and Galilee. There's talk. Who's this guy? 
Who's Jesus of Nazareth? Could he be the one? See, for generations, the people of God had been talking about a Messiah and expecting this Messiah. They'd heard about this kind of shadowy figure from the Old Testament, and they were talking, they built their hopes up that he would one day emerge and redeem the people of God from their oppression under the Roman Empire. And so for generations, they've been waiting for this person. And then Jesus, powerful in the spirit, bursts onto the scene at a synagogue meeting in his hometown. He's the guest preacher of the day, so to speak. And he chooses this passage from Isaiah chapter 61, which is a messianic passage, sort of oracle. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom to the oppressed, sight to the blind, the year of the Lord's favor. He reads that, sort of a mic drop, sits down, which would have signaled that it was, now it's time to preach. That's actually how they did it then. The preacher sat while the congregation stood. And, and his sermon was simple, to the point, just a really short sermon. This very day, this very scripture has been fulfilled. And uh, that's it. That's his first sermon. Some of you would love that Bethany Northeast is a little more biblical. Um, and that was a, that was a joke. Ha <laughs> ha. <laughs> but the key here is that fulfilled is an expectation word. That's what that word means. When he says, this scripture has been fulfilled. It, the word means to fill up like a jar or a glass with water, but it can also mean to pervade. So pervade with influence, to influence completely, to accomplish, to realize. So he's saying that the, your messianic expectations are now a reality. So their hopes and their fears of all the years, that, like that Christmas hymn goes, are met in me tonight. And, but here's the problem. And here's how it connects to the Pinterest fails. Jesus is not there to affirm their expectations of Messiah. He's there to challenge them. In other words, he'll say, he'll say as we're going to look in a moment, he's going to show them that their expectations of who God is and what God will do and where God will go are unrealistic. They are totally out of touch. They think they can make it one way, and it's not going to be that. They've so elevated their expectations of God and Messiah, they're in danger of utterly missing the real thing and a real experience, a real encounter with the real God. They expect salvation to look one way. And, and Jesus is saying, prepare yourselves because it's going to look like nothing you expect. And if you could have seen some of these pictures, like they were amazing. And so <laughs> Jesus has come in these first moments of his ministry on earth to correct or, or not to, to, to abolish, but to correct their great expectations and align them to the heart of God. And so what we're going to do this morning um, is kind of like what Jesus does is, is explore several important ways Jesus corrects their expectations. In particular, three of these. So he's going to, he corrects who they expected. Um, he, he corrects uh, who they've, well, let me just say the outline. It's in the, it's in the bulletin. He wasn't who they expected. He comes for the unexpected and he goes where they don't expect, okay? So he corrects who they expect, who, who he's come for, for the unexpected, and then where they expect. Just follow along. You'll understand. So the first is, he wasn't who they expected. And, and this is in verse 22. Actually, verse 14, like I said, he comes back to Galilee. Word is spread. He's preaching and teaching, gives his sermon. And then verse 22, all of the people there spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came out of his lips. And they said, isn't this Joseph's son? And, and here's the deal. He was surprising. He was unexpected. He was a, he's a, he was a gift because... As Joseph's son, bursting onto the scene in these first pages, he's extraordinary to them. Um, and because you see, good gifts, you guys all know this, are, the best gifts are unexpected. They always are. 
They're always a surprise. It doesn't mean that all gifts have to be a surprise because some of the best gifts I've ever received were ones I actually asked for. Like, hey, I'd love to get that for Christmas, and I got it. But the, the giftness of the gift is greatly enhanced when, when, you, when it totally surprises you. Um, and, and so the quintessential language around a, a person who's received a, an amazing gift is I didn't expect that. I wasn't looking for it, but it's exactly what I wanted. It's perfect. It suits me. That's what it means when people in this story hear Jesus preach, speak well of him, and say, wow, is this Joseph's, isn't this Joseph's son? It's gift language. I mean, that literally, when, it, when, they say, when it says that his, they were amazed his gracious words, the word for grace in Greek is a, is a gift word. He's speaking gift words. And what's more, their response is language of surprise. I mean, it, wow, Joseph's son? He can preach, man. That's amazing. Now, why was that? Why, what was so surprising about Jesus in these first moments? And they had, they'd grown up around this guy. They knew this guy. And can I suggest to us that it's very simple? We, it's so simple that we miss it, that their response is really a refle- reflection of Jesus' extraordinary ordinariness. Um, the, the ordinariness of Jesus blows their mind. They figure, well, if, if he's the Messiah, if there is a Messiah, he's not going to be one of us. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's just a hometown boy. Like, he grew up here. And what's more, he's so common, right? How could a common man's son, um, a working-class family, make such extraordinary claims and do such extraordinary things? There's no way he's the Messiah. In, in fact, in Mark's version of this story, if you go to Mark chapter 6 sometime, Mark puts a, a much finer point on this reaction. There are people there that are similarly astonished, and they say this. How did Jesus learn to say what he says? How, where did he learn to do what he's been doing? He's just Mary and Joseph's son. His brother is James, like throwing James and his other brothers under the bus, and his sisters are living with us. Like they're in our Sunday school class, and ooh, they're always misbehaving. He's so ordinary. How could he be the Messiah? There's, there's absolutely no way. Familiarity indeed breeds contempt, doesn't it? And it kind of gives you a pause because remember that mid-90s song? As some of you do because you're Gen X. That Joan Osborne song, What If God Was One of Us? What if God was one of us? Duh. And so um, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus, a lot of you Completely over your heads, but it's okay. I think they have CDs of this still. But um, she had no idea, I don't think, how theologically insightful her song was. No idea. She did not. That was not a Christian song. And she was on to something in this story. What Jesus was saying, that, that you have these incredible expectations of a Messiah, and yet Messiah, when you really get to know him, is going to be so strange to you. He's just going to be a stranger on the bus. You're going to sit down next to him. You're going to have conversations. He's going to ask questions about your life. You're going to walk with him. He's going to talk to you. He's going to be extraordinarily ordinary. That's Jesus. That's the implication of this question they ask. Isn't this Joseph's son? They didn't have a category for Messiah like this back then. We don't now. An ordinary small-town boy, just an average Joe, a son of a Joe, like us. Who just Like us, they're latched onto this very basic human expectation that life and salvation will be extraordinary. Like, we love the extraordinary ending in this story, you know? We love the extraordinary marriage. We want extraordinary children. We want extraordinary careers in technology. We want extraordinary experiences. We put those up on Pinterest and Instagram. 
We want extraordinary encounters with God, extraordinary churches. We want the extraordinary God to come down and intersect with our ordinary lives and make them spectacular. That's what we want. But, but Jesus comes in and corrects that very human and worldly expectation by becoming one of them. A small town, unpretentious, unremarkable man. Very human. William Lane, who was a former professor at Seattle Pacific, in his commentary on the Gospel of Mark, he has a really interesting commentary on, this, on that Gospel. And in this story, in that Gospel, he says, in spite of what they heard and they saw, the, the people of his hometown failed to penetrate the veil of ordinariness which characterized this one who grew up in their village. Is that our problem today? Like, have we failed to penetrate the veil of ordinariness which characterizes Jesus? I mean, we're sitting here today, we're waiting for a voice from heaven before we're going to respond to the call of God. We're waiting for fireworks. We're waiting for something traumatic to happen in our lives. We're waiting for the lightning bolt to come through the sermon, for God to show up and do something. And then, yeah, I'll believe. And see, one of the problems with Christianity in the church, I think, is that one out of every 100 Christians has that kind of experience. Like, the God showing up, God doing something dramatic, and those are always the people we ask to get on the stage and share, <laughs> unfortunately. Kind of like Paul's Damascus Road, you know, fireworks, special effects. To which we often react, if you're one of the other 99, well, I guess if I'm a Christian, really a Christian. You know, I grew up as a Christian, always been a Christian. Nothing ever, I don't, I must not be a Christian. And maybe God's not God. Um, and let me tell you that how incredibly distorted that perspective of God is because For the other 99, it's ordinary, it's plain, it's small, it's hometown, which means that right now in your life, there is probably a person or a trouble or or a circumstance that's pulling you toward God. It might be one of your children. Heard this from a friend of mine this week, one of his children doing something ordinary but extraordinary, Um, pulling us toward Christ. It might be a hardship you're facing. It might be uh, that still small voice of Christ nudging you. It might be the so-called stranger in the bus. I've shared this uh, book called Still before by this woman named Lauren Winter. Um, She's a prominent evangelical author from kind of the South, Virginia. And, you know, if you know that area of the world, um, there there are clear blacks and whites and do's and don'ts. And so she writes some books, and then she goes through a pretty um, epic divorce and is kind of um, black sheeped out of the church. And so she leaves the church. And then she writes this book called Still, which I love. It's mid, uh, subtitles called Stories of a Mid-Faith Crisis. And she talks about the, t- the day she went back to church. It actually happened to be during Lent. And she said she found a pew in the back, sat there by herself. And here's this, I'll read this little excerpt from the book. She says, then a thin woman with bright red toenails and a simple white dress slid in right next to me. And she's alone too. And she looks to be about 40, like me. And she has long, shiny hair and wears no ring. And I decide then and there she must also be recently divorced. A minute later, a man with a palsied limp and an untucked shirt, kind of like mine, um, and a spot of something on his, uh, his shirt that looks like dried mustard, or on his left ear, uh, sits right in front of me. So much for all that luxurious space, she says. What did I expect, though? In my experience, only two kinds of people take the last few in the church, parents with babes in arms, and people who somehow feel marginal and are unsure if they want to be in church or unsure if they can be in church. And then the organist fires up the introit. This is a more traditional church. And a woman sidles in to my left and mumbles something, which I take to be, is there space here? 
So I scrunch my legs together so she can squeeze past into the still, mostly empty middle of the pew. But she doesn't move. She just keeps standing there expectantly, looking at me. And I come to realize that she wants to sit where I'm sitting. She wants the same spot at the end of the pew where I am. Perhaps she's too claustrophobic. Perhaps this is where she sits every week. What choice do I have? I move over. I'm now sandwiched between the woman, uh, the thin woman with the white dress and this new woman who looks frankly like she's seen better days. She has a suitcase with her. She keeps a hat and sunglasses on throughout the entire service. She smells like rotten apples and the streets. She never opens the prayer book. She never joins in the responsive readings. She never seems, she seems to know a lot of people in this church. And she stands and kneels at the right appropriate moments. She seems oddly entirely comfortable, but I wish I'd sat somewhere else. She makes me feel trapped. And then Lauren Winter goes on. Here's the punch. In the middle of the sermon, the rotten apple woman begins to tap her right index finger rapidly on her knee. And it's a tapping of a crazy person, one from whom Jesus would have cast a demon. There isn't even a rhythm to the tapping. It makes the whole pew shake. I glare at her, hoping she'll take the hint. Tap, 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 tap. And then unaccountably, my left hand, sh- my left hand shoots out I close my fingers over her hands, squeezing her fingers together to stop the tapping as a mother would stop stop a child. And I'm horrified. (laughs) (laughs) And then, as I'm blushing the color of my sweater and thinking that it would be nice to vaporize, I realize the woman doesn't seem offended or confounded or surprised. She hasn't even shrugged off my grasp and let go of my hand. In fact, she seems to be holding it. And we hold hands for the rest of this service. And this is part of what I mean when I say it's life inside the Christian story that's begun to tell me who I really am. That's what Jesus is doing in this story. I've got to get back to my notes. I'm stuck in this book. iPads, come on now. It's like you've got to touch certain places and then do certain things. <laughs> this tap, tap, tapping. That's, I mean, that's Jesus. This, at least this grasping of hands, that intimacy... This holy moment, Jesus was in her life in a way that she could have never expected. This sort of stranger on the bus. His sermon is in their lives. It's sort of this tap, tap, tapping in their community. Just showing up, tapping, as was his custom. He'd been there before, just another day. And for some reason, this particular day, on that particular year, they were fascinated by him. He was extraordinarily ordinary. They don't even know why. I mean, just initially, they're fascinated. They become angry toward him later, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But these first moments, they are besides themselves with wonder. And so the application for us as we move on is don't wait for the blinding light, friends. Don't wait to commit to Jesus. He's ordinarily in your life. Every day, 24-7, 365, and he's bringing you along. He's pushing you along. He's tapping you along toward the kingdom of God. He loves to work through these little ordinary moments. Just tap, tap, taps. Don't be scared of those. Don't miss them. Don't be surprised by them. And don't expect the extraordinary when this is normally the way God operates. That's the first thing. He wasn't who they expected. He was extraordinary the ordinary. So here's the second thing I want to talk about. And it's actually the last thing, I think. Jesus comes for the unexpected. So he's not who they expected. And then he comes for the unexpected. And in verses 23 to 28, we didn't read this. Um, but this is where you actually have Jesus explaining a little bit of his sermon, what it really means to be extraordinarily ordinary. And there's really three parts to this whole story. There's his sermon, which I mentioned is just 
three lines, this day, this scripture has been fulfilled. In other words, I'm the sermon. That's all you need to know. <laughs> okay, that's the sermon. And then there's the response to the sermon, and there's Jesus' explanation. So let's look at their response real quick. Um, and it wasn't until this week when I studied this that I, I realized how astounding their response is. Notice they liked it. They're not outraged at him, at least initially. They don't say, who do you think you are? You know, you're just Jesus. How do you get off saying these things about yourself? They're not offended. <laughs> they're not upset. They're not shocked. Uh, they're happy. I mean, all spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words. Good sermon, pastor. That's really awesome. What does that mean? I mean, why are they so amazed at him? And the answer to that question is, my best guess is they had this grid they were listening to Jesus through, a way of understanding this text from Isaiah 61, because they'd heard it before. They were not, this is not the first time. These people have been coming to the synagogue their whole lives. And, and here's their grid. We're good guys. We're the good guys. We're good people. We're moral. We work hard. We believe the Bible. We come together every week in this synagogue. We try our very best to obey God. We pray, we serve, we give. And we're under the thumb of a foreign power right now, the boot of this occupying power, the Roman government. And they're the bad guys. You get this? We're the good guys. They're the bad guys. And in their traditional interpretation of this, this passage within that grid, someday the Messiah is going to come and lead the good guys to triumph over the bad guys, liberate the good guys from their bad guy oppressors, depose the bad guys. That's their worldview. We're the ones that don't have self-government. We're the ones who are taxed into the ground. We're the ones who don't have sovereignty over our own state. I mean, do you see this? They heard Jesus reading this text from Isaiah and it tickled their ears. Like, <laughs> he's talking about us. Good news, the oppressed. Freedom, the prisoners. Yeah, come on. They understood themselves that way. And when they hear Jesus say this, they run it through that grid and they look at him and they say, well, I mean, how can that, how can Joseph's son do that? That's their first response. That doesn't make sense. But <laughs> because he's talking about us, doesn't make a big deal. Let him do it. Let's go. We're on board. We'll figure it out. And because of that, I mean, Jesus immediately understands they don't get what he's talking about. He, he, he intuits, he understands they don't get the gospel. He realizes they've misinterpreted his, his sermon. And so he expounds this sermon to them. Tells them a little story, a couple of illustrations about Elijah and Elisha, the widow of Zarpeth and uh, Naaman the Syrian. And the reason he does that is he wants them to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God always sent his prophets always sent his messengers, always sent himself, his salvation first to the people who didn't believe they deserved it, always. God comes for the unexpected. He says, let me just tell you how my salvation works. Let me just tell you exactly how it works. Let me give you a couple stories. There was once upon a time, many widows in Israel. But God sent his prophet Elijah to just one, the widow of Zarephath, 1 Kings 17. Go read it sometime. She's not a Jew. She didn't fear God. She doesn't know God. She doesn't walk with God in the company of God's people. She's an outcast from society, living alone in the desert, poor, hungry, at the point of death. Her son becomes deathly ill in the story, to which she says to Elijah at one point, what do you have against me? <laughs> have you come here to remind me of my sin and kill my son? She's mad. 
And yet God sends this messenger to her, this one widow, to restore her hope in God, to heal her son, to bring salvation into her life, to communicate, I think, what can only be described as grace. See, I, it's the Old Testament version of the shepherd leaving the 99 to save the one. That's, it's what it is, that story. And in case, Jesus says, in case that story doesn't make sense to you and how the gospel works, let me just drive the point home one more time. Let me tell you another story. Once upon a time, there were countless lepers in Israel, just like today. And yet God sent his prophet Elisha, after Elijah, to this one man named Naaman. And Naaman, oh, he was the general of the Syrian army, Israel's arch enemy. And God sends Elisha to heal Naaman and redeem Naaman and call Naaman into the salvation story. It's 2 Kings 5. I mean, he had contracted leprosy. He, He heard he could be saved through the prophet of the Lord. So he comes to Israel with a boatload of money. This is an amazing story. He brings all of his soldiers with him. He figures, you know what he figures? I can, I can earn, I can buy salvation because I'm, I'm like that guy. So he shows up at the door. Not even Elisha comes out. Elisha's servant comes out and says to Naaman, hey, if you want to be healed, take your money, take your weapons, take your soldiers and go home. <laughs> and take a bath in the Jordan River as you're, as you're on your way. Seven times, in fact, Naaman. He, Elisha's not interested in talking to you. It doesn't want anything to do with you. And so Naaman is furious about this. I mean, he's like, how can he? I'm Naaman. How can he not meet with me? And I brought all this money. And his, so his servants come after him, and they say, hey, Naaman, if the prophet told you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? Why not this? This is easy. And see, that's what he was expecting. Naaman's expecting Elisha to say, slay a monster, do some great feat for God, pay some great price, and you'll be healed. He's offended by this invitation to go wash in the river. Just take a bath. And you know why he's offended? (laughs) Because it's so easy and so foolish to do. Anybody could do that. You don't have to be good or bad, strong or weak. Anybody could just get in a river and lay there. It's just so ordinary. And he's offended because of his pride. He, how could he stoop that low? I mean, he's the general, like a prominent and powerful figure in history. That's beneath him, and yet that's precisely how God works. He stoops. He stoops low to save. And so Jesus takes up these two stories and says to this first community that he preaches to, look at their stories and, and, and evaluate your story through their stories. And as you do, you're going to have a new paradigm, a new grid for understanding salvation and yourselves. That salvation comes first and primarily to those who don't believe they deserve it. Who've gone beneath the surface of their spiritual pride. That salvation works on behalf of those who stand on the margins of society and wonder, does God even see me? Does my life matter? That salvation is for the spiritually bankrupt, for people who say, who come to terms with their utter need for God and, and come to God saying, only God, I need you. I need you. I have nothing else left. That's what those two stories together mean and why it's so amazing Jesus includes them here because he wants them and us to know that salvation is a free gift. It's a gift. And it's offered freely. You cannot earn it by doing something. You can't lose it by failing to do it. It's just grace and grace and grace. Grace only and grace always. And you have to lock that into your heart if you're going to experience it. And of course, when they hear it, what happens, they immediately are 
are really mad at Jesus, and they try and kill him. They actually drive him out of town and try and drive him off a cliff, which is just the most bizarre thing, because they begin by loving his sermon. They end by absolutely hating him. I'm, I'm actually really glad you're not like them. Um, but do you know why that's a traumatic shift in this story? I mean, why do they start out so well and they end so badly in a matter of moments? kind of blows your mind. And I think it's because they realized that Jesus hadn't come for them, that he wasn't their personal Jesus. Um, He's saying very radically, only people who know that they're spiritual outcasts, only people who are spiritually poor and who have dealt with their spiritual pride, the, the veneer of religion around their lives can experience salvation. And you haven't come to that point yet. You're full of yourselves. You think this story's all about you. You've, you've clothed yourselves in a religious cloak to come here. Close yourselves off to the possibility that salvation is a bigger concept than your experience of it every Sunday. And of course, this angers them that this Messiah might not be their Messiah and that their hearts were not ready to receive God. And so just like Naaman, when they're confronted, they're angry and they're consumed by this anger so much that they want to they kill him. Um, and the reason for that is because the primary evidence of spiritual pride is anger. If, you know, if, if, if your reaction to not getting your prayers answered and having things go the way you hope they'd go in your life is anger, you're dealing, really dealing with pride. You're really dealing with pride. You're saying, I, I want to be my own person. I'm going to decide how I'm going to live. And if I don't get to live that way, you know, ugh, why is that? I've been... Faithful, and, and we see the thing is, is, we typically think of rebellion as kind of disobedience, like the, the prodigal son. Um, if you look at that story, actually, there's two, two sons that are lost, and both are rebelling. And that older son, he's rebelling through obedience, not disobedience. He, you know, he's there his entire life. He says to his father at one point in the story, I've been slaving for you my whole life. I've never skipped a day of work. Um, and yet you welcome this kid back who, who wasted everything you gave him? Um, how can you do that? And see, this son is so furious at his father for taking his, his brother back and giving him what he didn't deserve, and that, that reflects something for us, I think, which is there in that synagogue that day, that anger that, that, that the father is not in debt to the son, ever that the gift of the Father is free for both of them to receive. Um, and Jesus is inviting them that day to just look at their hearts and, and say, which son are you? I mean, he hasn't told that story yet, but which son are you? Which Messiah are you expecting? I mean, look at your heart. When you go to prayer, do you say to God, look, I've lived well, God. I've tried hard. I've been good. I need this. I, I, you've got to do it. Um, it's, is that you? And if it doesn't happen for you, are you angry? You know, I've been in that, I'm in that boat with you, by the way, um, where, where I pray for things, I expect things from God, I want things really badly, and I get really upset when they don't happen. I journal them out, and I, I obsess, and I'm, I'm, you know, I've brought that into my relationship with God. And I feel convicted, and I, and I want to I impress upon us that, that that has to stop, because ultimately, when we do that, we're being our own gods. We are rebelling through our obedience. We're, we're not experiencing salvation, at least the kind that Jesus brought. Jesus says, I, I've, I haven't come to save you that way. I've, I've, you've got to understand that you're spiritually bankrupt when you, when you enter into a relationship with me. 
You need to know your deep need. You need to open up your hands to my provision, whatever that's going to be. For the widow, that was just trust in the midst of famine, like God was going to provide for her and her son. Courageous trust. Some of you need to courageously trust God for the thing he's going to give you. For Naaman, it was foolish faith, like getting into that water with, when he had all the tools of technology and medicine and power at his disposal, that would have looked very foolish to everyone watching. And yet God's calling him to the next foolish step. Might God be calling you to a foolish step? Who are you in this story? And what God's, what's God inviting you to give up and do and receive? And how are you coming to God? Those are the questions Jesus gives us this morning. And I think presents to us and invites us to reflect on as we respond. Are we coming as those so poor we're ready to receive everything God has? Saying, God, you owe me nothing, but because of who you are, you gave me everything. Thank you. You owe me nothing, but because of who you are, your character, your goodness, your love, you give me everything, and I receive. I want to invite us, as we sing this next song, to... um, Reflect on where our hearts are at. We're gonna, this song is called All the Poor and Powerless. And it's actually funny because Andrew and I got our scriptures mixed up this week. And so he picked this song based on another text. And then he asked me this morning, I told him, hey, no, we're preaching on Luke 4. He's like, oh, no. And um, he asked me, does this song work? I was like, interestingly, it absolutely works. And so you can think of this song in terms of the third person. God welcomes everyone, all the poor and powerless, all the lost and lonely. Thank you, God, that everyone is welcoming inside your kingdom. Might we think of it in terms of the first person, that we are poor and powerless. We are lost and lonely. We're in need of God's salvation as much as anyone else. And until we, we open our hands to that, that need, that, and that, that desire just wells up in us, what we do here just means nothing. It means nothing out there. So why we just receive this morning what God has for us. Let's sing this song together.